Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There is absolutely no psychological fear in you are beyond all gods. Hey, God said he should send his one begotten son to lead the wild into the ways of the man. What does it matter? Our home, our nation, all the things we believe in are in great danger. Idiotic Ideologies. We're your hosts, Cindy Little and Joshua Fernandez. And today we are going to be talking about um, death and dying with Sarah Miller. So welcome, Sarah. (laughs) And um, just kind of to get things started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Awesome. Well, I have three main jobs. I'm a mom to a very spunky 10-year-old. I am a community liaison at Alamo Hospice. So I was a hospice chaplain for eight years and recently switched to more of the marketing leg. So now I help people get signed up for hospice. And then I own a company called The Good Grief Coach. So I do lots and lots of grief coaching each week for families who are grieving. I saw that online. Yeah. It's been really fun. How long has that been going on? I think I started it last October. So because people would always tell me, oh, gosh, I wish I had a chaplain, but they're not in hospice or they're not in the hospital. So they're like, I wish I had access to you to talk about grief or talk about death or talk about what I want my death to look like. And so people kept saying it over and over. So I'm like, I'm just going to start a little side business. And it's been fun. People hire me to come talk to their kids about death and to talk to their kids' teachers about death. And um, oh, so wow. it's, yeah. And That's I'm, interesting because now you got to, re- I mean, yeah, yeah, you've been, you've seen what works with talking with people about it and how to yeah. approach it. No, it's interesting, yeah. How do kids, I'm curious, now, how do kids approach it? Or, I mean, how do you approach the kids? It depends on how the death happens or how the death will happen. So, like, if it's a suicide, it's very different. But if great-grandpa died from Alzheimer's, we talk about it differently. Also, it depends on the age of the kids because sometimes, you know, like, the zero- to four-year-old crowd, um, it's very different. It also depends on the faith tradition of the parents. Mm-hmm. So, because some kids, they're, you know, their parents want them to think that grandma went to heaven. So... Mm-hmm. We talk about that, but we never say things like grandma went to the hospital, got sick, and died because then the kid's never going to go to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> or grandma went to sleep and never woke up because then that child's oh, they're never going to go to bed. Yeah, yeah. nap time is a little here. My kid's not sleeping. Well, yeah, they think they're going to die. So um, so I actually really like working with kids in grief. Um, I thought that I wouldn't. But Has that ever out. happened? Um, just to turn it a little more uh, funny, some humor. Have you ever said the wrong thing and like someone busted out crying and you're like, oh, <laughs> Just curious. Huh? I mean, you're, you're probably good at your job. I doubt you you, you know what to say to somebody. With I think I do now, but when yeah. I was beginning, I definitely told someone that her that her sister died, and 
she threw up all over me. Oh. So I don't know if I could have handled that like differently. Well, I'll yeah. never forget it. I was like yeah, meeting her. I was like, whoa. And my boss was like, how'd that go? And I'm like, not well. I'm not sure that I could have said it differently yeah. or if like it was just a situation, but I'll definitely never forget. I've also been punched. <laughs> so oh. But they weren't angry with me. They were angry yeah, with the situation. Reaction. Yeah, it was just a reaction. Oh. So I was like, wow. Um, and definitely, yeah. I don't, I don't actually have any really good funny stories about... Like telling someone that they've died. I was gonna say it's not really. Yeah, a I didn't funny even think it was funny, but I guess maybe yeah. more the uh, just slip be, lear, the learning process for you. And not that it was funny, but that I guess I definitely looking some, back on it, it can be a little more. I've definitely screwed up a lot of things. You have no idea, like wow. especially in the beginning of being a chaplain. Oh my gosh! That's I, was like, I guess that's what it takes to be a chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the pro man. You're the yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of dark humor in chaplaincy because that's we're like I'm, constantly working I'm, with death. Yeah. yeah. So. Definitely, there's stuff I would say to them that I would not say to the general public because they'd be like, oh my God, that is so morbid. But I mean, that's how you survive doing this grief, you know, and the heavy stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. So, um, along the same lines, why did you choose this profession? It's an interesting choice. Yeah, I get that question a lot, actually. I bet. (laughs) Like, why would you choose to do death and dying? Yeah. Uh, I think because I have like a really fun personality, people assume that I'm like an event planner or I do like weddings or, you know, like that I'm the party girl. Mm -hmm. Um, So when they find out, especially after they've been with me for a few hours, that I'd actually do death and dying for a living. They're like, whoa, I did not see that coming. So long story short, my dad was a doctor. So when I was growing up, my stepdad actually uh, took me with him to see patients because that was back before HIPAA. And so I would go see patients with him, and I loved it. And I loved going to his office and seeing his patients, and I would do post-op visits with them after they'd had surgery. Um, I loved it. Um, So when I went to college, I thought I would take a chaplaincy class, and y'all – Talk about being an arrogant little mm. 20-year-old. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be so good at this because my dad's a doctor and I know everything about chaplaincy. Um, mm. And so I passed out on my first patient. <gasps> yes. Yes, I did. Oh, no. My very first patient I saw by myself, I walked in the room and I was like, hi, I'm Sarah. I'm at Washington Baptist University and I'm here to be your chaplain for the day. And, and the guy was like telling me about this horrible accident he had and how he he fell off a deer stand and all this and he broke his legs and he was in traction and I remember thinking my leg really hurts as he's talking to me about his leg hurting and I'm like okay Sarah be empathetic and be sympathetic but don't be with the person mm-hmm. and I told him I'm getting really hot and the next thing I know I woke up and I was like on top of him oh no and he was yelling this chaplain passed out on me wow. it's the most embarrassing day wow. of my life so after that, and I did that little chaplaincy internship, I was like, mm, maybe I need some time to grow up a little. Um, so then I, my mom died in 2010, and her death was gorgeous. Like, everything you could possibly imagine a beautiful death to be, my mom had. Like, people would write their, these, you know, their birth stories and how magical it was. My mom had an amazing death. She had, um, had a like, you know, concert grand piano in the living room and her friends came and took turns playing the piano for her while she died, overlooking the lake. Her friends were all there. I mean, it was like a fairy tale. And after her death, I was like, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to help people have beautiful deaths. So I signed up for chaplaincy training. I went to seminary for three years. I did all the CPE classes, clinical pastoral education, and then I never turned back. I'm still here. But it was really cool. And I have seen some amazing deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do which see keeps that, yeah. me going back for more. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, the, I'm I'm glad that your mom was able to have such an amazing death. And my dad also. He had his death like um, I think seven years after hers, and his was not as magical in some ways. Like there wasn't piano playing, but it was like um, 
the night before his death, he threw himself a huge party and all of his friends came and there was piano playing and there was music and there was singing and there was cake and ice cream. And like, he definitely died the way he always lived. And my mom definitely died the way she always lived. And they say mm -hmm. to die with dignity is to die how you've always lived. So if you are someone who's very quiet and introverted, then you should die you know, alone and in your space and not with all mm -hmm. these strangers up Lots in your business. People. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're like me and you're like really extroverted and you love people, then you, like the best way to die would not be like alone in a COVID isolation unit. Like a beautiful death for me would be surrounded by all of my friends, probably by a body of water. So how do they know when to throw the party? I mean, I, I know there's probably not an injection thing, but is there, uh, yeah, are they on life support already? And then they're just like, yeah, I'm ready to pull the plug. So let's have a party or... No, my dad, a crazy physician that he was, told everyone he was going to die on a Friday. Um, and he went on hospice on a Monday, and he said, if you want to see me alive, you have to come before Friday. So he knew kind of when he, he wanted just to let knew. go. Mm -hmm. I could see that. So on Thursday, he's like, okay, we're having a party. Everyone come. So they all, I mean, like 150 people showed up to the hospice house and had a party. And then the next morning, he said, okay, everyone meet in my hotel. <laughs> Not my hotel room. Meet mm -hmm. in my hospice room at 9 a.m. We're going to say goodbyes. And then he died in the middle of the night. Most people don't know that they're going to die unless, like, they're, you know, intubated, like you are saying. But he was completely with it until the actively dying. Yeah, have you, so, have you ever, now I'm curious, have you ever noticed if um, somebody knows the difference between I'm holding on, like, I can just tell my body that I'm kind of, at this point, something I've never experienced, like, where I'm, I'm keeping my body going. Like, I just know I'm keeping my body going, and, and I'm just ready to let go. And, then, like, is there a mechanism in there that you've ever observed like that? Like, your dad almost kind of... Yeah, I feel like I have some patients that have said, like, why am I still here? And every time I show up, they're like, why am I still alive? And you're like, I'm so sorry. They're like, this is not the hospice experience I was promised. And I'm like, oh, my bad. I'm so sorry. I cannot speed up your death. That is illegal. I'm going to have to move to California to make that happen. Because in America, I'll go to jail for that. Um, so there are some people that their brains definitely outlive their bodies. So they're just waiting for their last day to hit. They're just waiting for it to hit, yeah. But people are there expecting that, so they keep coming? Or is it, I guess the hospice experience is more, uh, just, yeah, I guess there's people there to take care of you. Yeah, and we're there to educate the family. We're like one big education piece. Like hospice is all about education, helping the family know when the person might pass and what it might look like and managing the pain and making sure the patient's like comfortable. Is there a, how early can somebody enter into hospice care? So we generally accept people when we think that they have around six months left okay. to live. Oh, so they, you're pretty much terminated. Like, you, you have a terminal thing. Yes, you have a terminal you know, disease. Like, it's terminal. like, you would not be able to qualify for hospice. But yeah. if you had late-stage cancer and without aggressive medical treatment, you would die within six months, then you come on hospice. You just say, I'm going to just right. fade out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Which, but sometimes they live for two years on hospice. So. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've heard that sometimes people will survive hospice. Yeah. Oh. Have you experienced that? Mm -hmm. we, they flunk out. We have they to discharge flunk out. <laughs> That's great. We're like, sorry, come back when you're more dying. Because <laughs> right now your level of dying is not what we it's need. Not, yeah. <laughs> but, and that leads me to another question here. Our culture is so uncomfortable with death. Um, what are your thoughts on normalizing this as a part of life? Have what have you learned over the course of your your chaplaincy? Anything on how to kind of normalize it for people? Or do people just confuse themselves because they're scared? Well, and all, I, yeah. Throughout life, like your whole life, you're just scared of all of it. I don't know. Deep down, there's just a fear. So you, 
you have to believe, you have to feel like there's something after this. And it's just like, if you just do your, live your best life and you, you know, death is a part of life and it's just a cycle and creation comes, like, well, I don't know why it doesn't stop there. Out of that, I have so much liberation. You know, when you die, you, there's, there's no doubt that creation comes, well, however you want to look at it in any kind of fashion with religion or whatever. But can we just leave the words out and just say, all right, death is just, I'm not scared of death because death is this process and, and, and it doesn't end. Nothing ever ends. I we think people see. are scared of death because they don't see it. Like, no one's really that terrified of childbirth because we talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. This is what it's going to be like. You're going to be pregnant for probably about nine months, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to go to the hospital, and you're going to get dilated, and then, then, and then. And so we talk about it all the time, and we right. talk about weddings all the time. We talked about other, you know, major life things all in the movies. But death, we just don't talk about. So people exactly. don't know that That's you're going to probably be wearing diapers at the end of your life. And, like, mm-hmm. 99%, 9%, 99% chance you will be in your bed when you die and you will have not had any food or water for several days. You will probably have not been responsive to anything for several days before you pass. Um, so we just don't talk about it. So when they're like, oh, my mom hasn't opened her eyes in three days, is that normal? Like, yes, that is so normal. But we don't know because we don't talk about it, right? So I think to normalize it, we would need to talk about death and what it yes. looks like. And then I think, you know, when you say like normal for our culture, like we live in America where there are so many different cultures. So it's hard. Like my neighbor is from Nicaragua. So in her culture, when someone dies, um, they have like a, a, an obituary, but the obituary is verbal. So someone drives around in a car mm-hmm. with a loudspeaker and says, Cindy Little has died at 4 a.m. Her funeral will be on Saturday at 4 p.m. And they go all through the streets yelling it. So you don't get an obituary in like newspaper like we would get. You were on Facebook, you would get it on. You would hear it. So in that, in Nicaragua, that's super normal. And everyone knows that when someone has passed, you're going to hear about it Mm -hmm. on the streets. Um, In America, we don't tell children about it very much. We act like it didn't happen. We don't take them to the funerals. We don't take them to the gravesides. We just we just don't talk about it. Um, so I don't know how to help people necessarily other than just talking about it yeah. and making and allowing children um, to be a part of it because allowing kids to see peaceful, calm deaths is the best way. Our program at Alamo, we call it peaceful passing so that no one dies alone. So we have someone sitting with patients when they pass. And if we could let kids and teenagers, even college students, see that more, that it's not... Sometimes death is horrific, yes. Sometimes there are car accidents, and it's horrible, mm-hmm. and it's a horrific death. But most of the deaths I've seen have been beautiful and peaceful and calm. Nobody was freaking out. Like, mm-hmm. the people who are dying are not freaking out at all. The people around them sometimes are, but the actual dying person's not, like, freaking out for air or in pain. Like, have they pretty much accepted it then? As they're or dying? they're comatose at that they're point. they're comatose? Yeah, yeah, so they don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nothing's going on upstairs. Yeah, no, nothing's happening. So um, a lot of them will look up, like, right as they're dying, and they'll look over our heads. So, like, look over, and they'll say, oh, it's beautiful. Mm. And so we don't know what that is. You know, what's beautiful if, what, if they're seeing heaven, if they're seeing their family, if they're seeing a rainbow. But um, I've watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people die, and most of them are just very at peace. Um, and very peaceful as they pass, like just just goes. 
Um, a lot of people like to open windows to let the spirit fly. Mm-hmm. So that's a big thing in Waco, Texas. People are like, open I've the window. That, yeah. Open the window. <laughs> I, I walked into a room a few months ago and the patient was already passed. And I looked over and sure enough, the window was already cracked. So I was like, okay, they, they did it. Because I was oh, like, I'm going to no. go open the window. The soul came fly the out. The soul can't fly out without, unless the cra- window is cracked. You can't go through the glass. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Um, but you know, you see, you're so right, and this is what I talk about all the time. And I know sometimes it's hard to understand, but if we just talk about things, and, and you're, and then you're just who you are, the, the, as far as how, what how you've been being a chaplain and, and just your history and stuff. So when you when you say stuff, and we're able, we're able to have a conversation like this, I have no choice but to listen to you about death. And when I do everything you just said, now I take that, and when I and from what I've seen living my whole my life with just uh, the people passing, and, and as people get older. I'm like, so far, this is matching up. You know, this is right. So now I have no choice as a human being but to say, all right, I'm going to exercise. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to put myself through difficult situations. So when I get older and, and say that all this stuff starts to happen, I'm, I'm trained. I'm equipped. I'm mo- like, why would I not be so, I don't even want to use the word motivated, but to say that when we have more talks about death than me as a human being to say, oh, shit. All right, so I have to do these things now because either that or it's that. And so... It seems, and when you look at our society, especially, everybody's always choosing that side, the side that, um, I don't want to say, is, uh, makes, the, the, you would ask a person, they would say, I make bad decisions, yeah, all the time, or people aren't perfect, we make bad decisions, and they say, well, what, what's so hard about making a decision based off of when you he- what you hear and what you observe, and then to say that that's fact, and, and I want to now move in a way that's going to make the whole process of living and death and all these facts that, that we've talked about, all these things that we know, I don't even want to say easier, but just, just, just say uh, that's how you move. I mean, you want to know what the decisions you should make, and you need to know how to treat people in your life. Well, then when we have conversations about death and about love, these are the best conversations you can have. These are the only conversations, I mean, I, I would really kind of focus on, but, you know, we, we have conversations about my, my neuroticisms, and we have conversations about my petty life. And so you start to see the – well, for me, I start to see why humanity is just – We've come so so confused, come so so unglued, and now now it's hard because you're fighting conditioning and you're fighting so much. So I mean, as far as hope goes, and and will humanity really transform? I would say yes, but damn, I mean, are we gonna are we gonna talk about this stuff? And are we gonna be open enough if your kid disagrees with you as a parent, maybe religiously or whatever it is, that you're gonna say, I'm well, I'm listening to you. I'm I'm still gonna listen. I'm not ever, I'm not I'm never gonna say you're wrong. Because I, I see the consequences of that. You know, this is so weird. So you're yeah. saying that you're thinking like you're going to prepare for death by living your best life so that when you die, you don't feel like you've messed up. Yeah, and everybody, and I can see everybody pretty much saying that. But what, 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 when, when, when we say that, what that means is that I'm aware of what, how I've seen death and what you're telling me about death. And so I have now only one choice either to move and and you know just kind of wither away and when I'm 45 you know my I'm 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 wearing down and having these problems of becoming old or will I say that no as you get older if I if I'm aware of my body and I'm taking you know the steps to uh move better and work out and and eat right and but I'm also taking the the steps to my relationships with my mother and my because when I see death, everybody's always like, oh, I wish I spent more time with them. So I have no, I have no. Now my decision is made for me to spend time with people, and not mm-hmm. to get so caught up again in my selfishness and in my the desires. And but to say that's what life, that's the truth of life, right? What you're telling me, what everybody says when they're dying, how they want to spend more time with people or whatever it may be. Andrew, no one ever tells me wish they wish they would have worked more. 
<laughs> ever. Yeah. And they also never say, oh, I wish I would have had that fight with that child of mine or whatever. They always say, like... Oh, I have my car. They, yeah, they say, oh, Sarah, I wish I would have done this or, oh, that it's kid is this, whatever, and I wish I wouldn't have done this. And sometimes even at the, the towards the end when they're still really ticked off with their grandchild or whatever, then at the very end, they're like, ugh. I shouldn't have like I should just let this go I'm like you should yeah. I tell people sometimes my job is like the redemption coordinator I go around oh, helping really people really good the redemption coordinator that's because so I'm true. just helping get people you know to, to have their redemption story because you die with a lot more peace if you don't have conflict in your immediate so I'm like why do people I don't know if people ever asked it but then it's like why do people keep doing why do, why do us I guess as people keep doing this to ourselves and every mm-hmm. death seems to always say the same thing instead of you probably hear it too, though, the happy death where someone says, well, I'm actually, I, I know I did right, and I, mm-hmm. I I couldn't have done no better. I'm ready to kind of go. I, I, yeah. I hear a lot of people say that. They're like, I'm awesome. ready. I'm yeah. ready. Let's do it. But I hear a lot of people with a lot of regrets, too. So I guess everybody's different. People live differently, and they die differently. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. What was your next question? My next question is, um, what advice do you have for those who are afraid of dying? Any? Hmm. Well, I guess if someone is afraid of dying um, and they know they're going to be dying soon, like let's say cancer, mm-hmm. um, I would start spending time with people who are dying because it's a lot less scary after you see it. That's interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't avoid it. You know, people say, oh, I have cancer. I'm not going to go on WebMD. I'm like, well, that's good. Don't go on WebMD and learn all the horrible <laughs> stuff. But it's a good idea to be around people who are dying. And I think also if you are, I mean, if you're really scared of flying, and you get on the plane and you do it, mm-hmm. um, it's different because you're going to live at the end of the flight. And <laughs> with dying, you aren't going to live like it's going to be over. But I think people are not, I guess if people are afraid of two things, they're afraid of either suffering or they're afraid of where they're going to go. So if they're afraid of where they're going to go afterwards, then that's up to them to figure out like right. what they think is happening in the afterlife. But if they're afraid of the suffering that's going to come with dying, like mm-hmm. they can usually ease their fears and know that it's not going to probably be that bad. Yeah, and, and that... Is, is really interesting. I think that's really true because my husband has cancer and he's got stage four lymphoma and he was diagnosed in 2018. And so... Four years. Four years. He's still going. He's he's doing great. I always mm-hmm. tell people that. He's doing really... Doing yeah. Until. He's doing okay. really, really well. What he's got is something called scissory syndrome. It's a cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and it can be managed and so he gets chemo like every couple of weeks, and um, he could live a long time just maintain, you know, for maintenance. You know, he's got a great medical team and everything. But the reason why I bring that up, I don't, you know, talk about it a whole lot because, number one, I think kind of like talking about death, a, a, you know, a serious illness like that, I've noticed that it makes people extremely uncomfortable. And, um, Are you uncomfortable? No. No, no, he's, he's, he's fine. I was like, I'm not uncomfortable, but yes, no. I mean, yeah, 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 there are some people, it makes them awkward. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely uncomfortable for them. And number two, I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who was um, just finished breast cancer treatment, and, and we were kind of talking about the big C word, you know, and I said, it's interesting, I go, it's, it's kind of like walking through a different door or going through a curtain, and yes, and behind the curtain, you know, um, there's this, because beforehand you're, oh my gosh, scary, chemo, suffering, death, all of that, and then once you walk through that door, and you're inside, and it's like, 
you know, I'm in the hospital, I'm in the cancer ward, I'm watching my husband get chemo. Um, and it's like, oh, this is what it is. Oh, okay, all right, maybe this isn't so, it's not as terrifying as I think a lot of people that haven't been through the door, yes. you know, understand it to be. The and not I, knowing is horrible. The not knowing and taking these guesses on things. Um, and so, yeah, and like I said, I was talking to my friend, you know, who had the breast cancer, and we were both talking about that. And she says, yeah, she goes, you, people don't know until they know. And and I kind of see it sounds like it's you know people dying is very much the same way. It's it's yeah. kind of like once you're there, it's 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 kind of like oh this is this is not what I expected, and not necessarily in a terrible way. It's it's a very human thing, but it's not it's not as terrifying as as we make it out to be. I agree. And so, is that true about most deaths that you... Is it true that most deaths are less scary for the people? Right. And, yeah. and for the loved ones that are with them. Yeah. I think when the hospice team does a good job of educating what it's going to look like, the family's not that scared. And when it's over, they're like, oh. Yeah. Okay. And, and touching on what you just said, you know, kind of almost this um, feeling of making something, kind of normalizing it, I guess, or mm-hmm. the, that whole situation... Um, I, I, it's always baffled me, or in my head, I you know, when you think about something like death and the the emotion it can bring, or the feelings and thoughts. And you touched on it earlier. I, I just don't understand though why I don't carry that same. It, it's going to be normalized at some point when we look at it, because why don't I carry any kind of thought, feeling to all the billions and who knows infinite time that I, existed before I was even born. And, and that does, you know, to me, that just shows how death doesn't have to be a frightening, mm-hmm. suffering thing. Because to me, that would really put me over the edge. Like, if that really hits you like it should, I mean, in, in a certain way, to think infinitely. Death, again, goes back to just, I think it carries so much weight and suffering and, and, and angst and despair because we don't talk about it. I guess also, I'll just keep every, it simply and Everyone's that. been born. We've all yeah. been born. We've all been five years old. Yeah. Most of us have been 10, 15, 20, 25 years of age, and we have all these experiences, but we haven't had the experience of death. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I turned it off, and it still is. It's okay. That's my phone. But I would tell people death is going to be like that. You're just yeah. not going to know, and it's, it's going to be cool, life. and it's just going to be yeah. the next generation happens, and you got to get down with it. you got to get down with the, that's just what happens. Now, anything beyond that, we can't see, and it turns into, to me, I think that's where the scariness comes in, um, or, or you have to spend your whole life trying to maintain something that seems almost, you're not genuinely being yourself, so you can go to heaven or get a bunch of virgins or whatever it is. <laughs> oh, that's, that's yeah. A, that's a podcast for another time. Yes. Now, we're, now we're crossing over into religion. <laughs> but um, but um, I wanted to ask, too, about compassion fatigue. How do you deal with compassion? Passion fatigue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. So I, um, so when I'm teaching caregivers on how to do it, I do it a little bit differently for them. But are you asking for me or from teaching it for caregiver? you? For me. For you. So I have like little signals, like I will know when I'm starting to get to the point. Usually, I will lose my car keys. I'll put my cell phone in the refrigerator, mm-hmm. like like just stupid stuff like that. And it's always pretty much the same ten things that I will do, and I'm like. 
So <laughs> I know that those are my traits. That's telling me I have to stop. I have to slow down. I am overwhelmed. Um, and sometimes, like, I will, like, very, very stupid things. Like, it really frustrated that I forgot to switch the washing machine out to the dryer. Like, and I'll be, like, really must. I'm, like, why am I upset about this? So I think, like, some of the little things, like losing your car keys or, like, little things that are on the exterior that are not a big deal are because my brain is so taxed with caregiving. And so these extra things just sort of show up. And so now I'm like, okay, I need to just be like, these are signs that I am overwhelmed and I need to stop. And I um, spend a lot of time with my dogs or I go outside or I take a bike ride. I do a ton of yoga when I'm stressed. So if I've had, you know, four or five deaths in a week, I'm going to do 12 yoga classes. Wow. Um, because that's, that's a how, lot of yoga. That's a lot of yoga. Um, and I may only go to the studio six times and I may do six classes at home. But I'm going to, like, I manage all of that because you're carrying that weight of other people's sadness and their family's sadness and all the details that go with you know planning a really beautiful death and so as the professional caregiver like I have to also ask myself like where does my story line up with theirs so if the you know the daughter has lost her mom to cancer and then now is taking care of her dad while he's dying Mm -hmm. maybe I'm going to feel more connected to her because you know, I've lost both parents young. Um, but maybe if it's, you know, a 90-year-old woman that I'm comforting and it's her 60-year-old son that's dying, that is so disconnected from me that I don't right. I don't get as, as connected. Mm-hmm. And so when something starts to really bother me or upset me, I'm like, why is this really happening? I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what this is bringing up for me. So I go to counseling when I need to. I do the yoga. Um, I spend time with my girlfriend. Um, I think most people can make it in chaplaincy and helping professions if they have enough support and if they're aware that like I'm getting to the point where I'm tired um after my dad died I took six months off and didn't do any hospice at all um I was exhausted from being a hospice chaplain during the day and taking care of him at night like I was just mm-hmm. I was like it was I couldn't do it my son was six I guess wow seven um and I remember thinking that I was more tired then than I was when he was a newborn like I just felt like I was constantly waiting for the phone to ring for my dad to need something or someone to need me to make a decision for him and then you know taking care of patients all day so sometimes caregivers have to also be brave and just stop Mm -hmm. and know when to stop yeah is that something you had was it was that a a hard lesson that you had to learn yeah yeah yeah. i'm an overachiever the look on Mm -hmm. your face i'll keep going and going and going and going i'll take care of everybody i am unstoppable i am a rock star Mm -hmm. and before i had caleb i was a super rock star i could do a lot and then after i had him it was like i think actually being a mom has really helped me be like okay i can't do that i actually can't do all those deaths at one time and i can't do all these things like um before i had him i think my stamina was like I could just do a lot and now I have more compassion and more like empathy and like I guess being a mom just makes me feel all the feels more mm-hmm. so I'm a lot more like um I totally get that do you oh yeah parenting it, it's like this this instinctual switch that turns on you know from before and after and yeah in a good way yeah. in a really good way it's, it's kind of almost like nature prepares you to parent and, and to love, unconditionally love this, this kiddo that you've brought into the world. I was a very different person going into that pregnancy and then going into that hospital, leaving the hospital. I mean, I was a totally different person. <laughs> I left and I was like, oh, oh I, am, I, am, I am here for this child. So before I would have been like, oh, yeah, I'll do three funerals this weekend. I'll officiate this. I'll do this. I'll do this. Now I'm like, oh, no, I have a kid. I can't do that. Like prioritizing him and also realizing when I'm not able to be present for my son has been a great way for me to be like, okay, yeah, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. 
if I just want him to like veg out on the computer or play a video game because I'm too tired, then I know I have to stop and be like, okay, Sarah, like you need to, because I, I want to still be a mom. I want to be great mm-hmm. as a chaplain and as a grief coach and everything else. But, you know, I'm only, the world has lots of access to chaplains. Caleb only has access to me as his mom. Exactly. Yes. So. Yeah, how does he feel about all of this? He loves it. Does he? He helped me officiate a funeral for a cat on Saturday. Oh. Mm-hmm. A cat died on Saturday morning. Our friend's cat, a cat, and so um, Caleb was very excited. He wanted to help plan the funeral. So Caleb um, drew out, like, told everyone what we're going to do. We're going to draw a picture of the cat, and we're going to write out what we remember about the cat. And then, yeah, oh, he loves it. He's helped me a lot. He's spoken at a few started. He's he's probably been to 50 funerals at least. Wow. Um and he's good with death. Like he'll, he's been with people when they're dying. Oh. He's been with people right after they've died. He's touched lots of bodies and caskets. When my stepdad died, he was like putting his hand on his heart. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just making sure he's not breathing. I'm just making okay, sure. <laughs> and then he said, Mom, how is Papa Wayne going to get to heaven? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you closed the casket. Awesome. And I was like, oh, valid point. Awesome. When I was teaching death and dying at Baylor, he told my students that after you get cremated, all that's left are your eyelashes. And I was like, eyelashes? It took me like 15 minutes. I'm like, ashes. He means all that's left are ashes. Ashes. Ashes, yeah. And I was like, you mean the ashes? He's like, that's what I said, Mom. And I'm like, yeah, we understood you to say eyelashes. And he's like, it's the same thing. And I'm like, it's a little different. When he was little, he used to build nursing homes and funeral homes out of Legos. And it's just been such a part of his life. He's great with it. Yeah. So he's good. I was going to say he'll be so much more well-adjusted. And good for you. Yeah. Mom kudos. When our dog died, I will say that was probably the saddest day of, of his life. And we did a funeral and a burial and, you know, casket and everything for the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caleb kept telling me, this is what grief feels like, Mom. And I was oh. like, yeah, buddy, it does. He's like, I've never experienced this kind of sadness. Yeah. This was, I think, two years ago. But, yeah, he's – he is – I think it would be different, you know, if he was losing, like, his dad or me. But um, I think he handles grief pretty well. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, so it's been pretty much normalized for him. That's great. He doesn't, he asked me, like, Mom, why don't we ever go to weddings? Why do we always go to funerals? <laughs> we always go to funerals. And he's like, do you know how to officiate weddings? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> he's like, no one ever asks you. They only ask you to do the funerals. <laughs> he's like, maybe that's just what you're better at. I'm like, probably so. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned a couple times now that you teach classes or have taught classes on death and dying. Um what about your students when they come in? Your new students especially. They're terrified. Okay. <laughs> they're like, oh my God, what is she going to do? Then they love me eventually. But yeah, the first couple days, they're like, a lot of them drop the first day because they're just terrified. I only, when I was teaching, I only taught at 8 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I wanted to teach kids that really want to be there. And I only taught pre-med, mostly pre-med students. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was good though. I loved it. I'm and in- my students are doing really well. I'm interested with new students. Maybe if, if you took notice when you started your chaplain and, you know, you, you see a new person or a new person that's dying, they come in and they need your services, or you see uh, the, the, the way the family handles it after they passed away. The, the, there's two things that I see when, when the death happens. And one is, you know, feeling sorry for somebody. And, you know, that's not what you want to do. And then the other one is like this celebration and this whole, uh, you know, that the person passed and, and, and you're celebrating not only their life, but also maybe there's a freedom from pain, you know, mm-hmm. just they, they've moved on. And so the, 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 the camera, I mean, you're not putting it so much on, on your self grief and on your like, this isn't about you. This is about this person 
you know, fulfilling their life and moving on. All right, so, so to make the question easy, I, I just didn't know, was there anything that ever switched or did do you ever notice this feeling sorry for somebody that, that a chapter might, a new chapter might have or that families usually have or do you ever notice or maybe what's your opinion on, on that moment when new chaplains come in and maybe when um, people actually die, is there, do you just feel like grieving is that we need to be careful with how we view death and not make it such a, such a fact that, yeah, somebody has gone and you lost something, but it's not about you and what you've lost. It's about this person's life and, and you know, kind of this honoring and this, um, that they, they've moved on. There's this transition that, that's worth taking notice of. Are you asking me if chaplain, if, if new chaplains feel sorry for the people that are dying? Yeah, is there almost this, I guess like if, you, if you talk about a cop and, 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 you know, and the, don't bring your work home, or you, you can't develop such an emotional attachment in the sense oh, of... Yes, new chaplains do take it all home with I'm them. I'm sorry. And yeah. then they get used to it. <laughs> After yeah. Yeah, your first 30 deaths are brutal. The first five are really tough. I'll never forget my first five. I had my first three in one night, so I was like, the next day I was like, I quit. I can't do this anymore. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, my gosh. Yeah, and the first one had red hair, and my mom had red hair, and she was 52, and my mom was 52. And so the first one, I was like, that's it. I can't do that's this. That's a bad like, question. Yeah, how, how did you handle it, and then how, how has it changed? Mm-hmm. And now you how do you look at it differently? If you really want to stay in the field and you really want to help people, you will not get so attached that you can't keep functioning, because otherwise I mean, you become worthless. Also, people always say, oh, I can never do that. I can never take care of people when they're dying. I'm like, yes, you could. It's just you can't take care of your own people when they're dying when my dad was dying I was exhausted I was delirious mm-hmm. I actually passed out the day he died like I got physically like mm-hmm. I had to take medicine like and that does never happen so I'm taking care of patients but when you're taking care of your own loved one oh my gosh it is exhausting but taking care of somebody else is not that bad well and that is an excellent point and for for chaplains and chaplaincy and, and you know grief coaching all of that it's kind of like you know I think um we kind of circle the wagons. It's like, okay, you know, I'm the spouse or I'm the parent or I'm the child. This is my job. And then, you know, we tend to take that whole burden on and not realizing that there's support out there, that there's help out there, and that it's better to call on that help or support. So, and I see, you know, and like I was thinking about this as I was preparing, it's like, I see what you do as a sacred calling. Mm. I really do. I mean, it's to me, it's more than a job. I mean, it's a calling. I agree. And yeah, and, and it's like, because you are helping usher people into death. We're like the death midwives. Yeah. The death doulas. Yes. yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's. That's an amazing calling. So my hat's off to you and for all the other chaplains out there. Um, Most of us really love it. You'd have to. I would think. Yeah. I would think you'd have to. Um, Otherwise, it would just be too difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, I was reading some things online from Psychology Today, and, and this I thought was interesting. A doctor said, fearing death also makes it harder for us to process grief. A recent study found that those who were afraid of death were more likely to have prolonged symptoms of grief after losing a loved one compared to those who had accepted death. Um, do you find that to be the case? Or have you seen anything along those lines? I was thinking about that just with people of faith. Like, you know, I'm not preaching any one gospel or whatever, but I do think people who have deep faith, whatever that faith is, they seem to be a lot calmer after the person dies. Um, and as the patient's dying, they're like, well, they're going to heaven or wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And the 
patient is much less anxious because they're ready to go see their loved ones or whoever they think they're going to yeah. go see. So um, not to say that I have not had some beautiful deaths with agnostics and atheists, because I have, um, and th- or people who believe in reincarnation or, you know, whatever. But um, I think that does ring true that if you are... Um, if you don't accept it and you're fighting it, then when the patient passes, um, you can usually tell if you walk into a room and um, one person's freaking out and no one else is, usually that person that's freaking out is the one that fought the death the hardest. Um, It's also usually the one that has the worst relationship with the patient. Mm -hmm. So if you walk into a hospital room and you don't know anyone and the patient's dying or dead and one person's freaking out, you just already know that's the one that's got the relationship with the the problems with the loved one. Um, They've got some regrets, it sounds like. And they're very angry because they couldn't control the death and they couldn't control the pain. And they That's my scariest death. thing, that you only have one life to live, so you only have one interaction with just anybody in your life. And, and you know, one day might not seem so big of a deal, but 10 years span, a 40-year span, mm-hmm. uh, which then goes back to then I tell myself that it's so important the way that I psychologically, you know... Um, prepare myself around people and, and to make people my mom and everybody else to have the best relationship with them. I mean, even if, if I was in a, a terrible situation to just somehow just realize that all I can do is just realize, you know what, I can either have regret on my heart by, you know, falling into the easy trap of hating this person and not at all. Or I can actually, you know, try to, or I can grit my teeth and just, and just say I did my grit best. Yeah. <laughs> if 40 years goes by, I can say I did my I'm best. I'm not all sure time. if the gritting my teeth will help you. Yeah. But definitely like, dying at peace is good. But even if you die at peace, you know, your family members is still on them to choose how they handle it. So if they That's fight it. That's an excellent point. That's on them. If they fight it, fight it, and fight it, and fight it, they are going to really have a hard time grieving, like that being said. Yeah. Um, people who grieve beautifully are those that are, like, um, when my mom was dying, I really had never seen anyone die. I'd never seen anyone die, and I had no idea what we were doing. Um, and so I was reading all these books on, like, death and asking the hospice people, like, tell me the truth. Like, what's it going to look like? And, um, I mean, I asked so um, and I, as I was watching her die, I remember thinking, like, I'm going to memorize this because I want to make sure that people never have to go through, like, this not knowing. And I, um, I feel like I grieved her so beautifully, anti- like, her anticipation, you know, the anticipatory grief, which is, you know, grieving before she passed. Like, if it had been a car accident, I would not have had that time to grieve. But since it was cancer and I knew it was coming, I had all this time. And so I, I feel like, like, grieving her afterwards was so much easier um, like I was sad, but I was also relieved and grateful it was over. And um, I'm very grateful that she died that way instead of a sudden death. You know, sometimes people say, oh, at least they didn't suffer. And I, I can see how a sudden death would be great also. But for me, it was great to have that time to like... To put, say goodbye. Yeah, and to plan and to prepare and to pray for her and to play the piano for her and to make her favorite drinks and like to make sure she had haagen ice cream before she died. Like, the things that were, like, important to our family culture got to happen because, you know, it was a planned death. You had that time. Mm-hmm. So that does, that, yeah, that makes a big, I would think that would make a big difference. It sounds like it does. I think so. I think, and yeah. if you if you choose to do some of the grieving and the accepting before the person passes, that makes it so much easier afterwards. You can prepare yourself. When people say, I'm not going to do this, they're absolutely going to live. This is not going to happen. I'm oh, like, but yeah. When you see that when they die, I'm like... With those kind of people, is there good communication between the dyer and then, like, the person actually dying? And then that person, like, when you say um, that some people, you know, grieve real hard and take it hard, those kind of people, I I just, I wonder, you know, what what was the relationship between them and and was there regrets? 
Um, it's usually an estranged child that comes back into the picture uh, or a niece or nephew that comes okay. back in. Cool. Or like I had one family that the guy was had been dead for like 15 minutes and they wanted me to revive him and bring him back to life. You to revive him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was oh, wow. like, oh. With what? Well, how? Yeah, that was my question too. I was yes. like, oh, I just want to clarify that you're asking me to bring him back to life. And they're like, yes. That's not what we're Jesus. asking. <laughs> and also, do we want to bring him back to a life that he was living because he was miserable? So yeah. I don't think that that would have been the right thing to do. Right. So I chose not to. Also, I don't think I have that power. But that family was hysterical because they had just found out a lot of information about him and why he died. Uh-huh. And so I think they needed closure. So I think if we could have kept him alive a couple more days so they he could have apologized for all of his stupid decisions and they could have apologized for not paying attention and all these things like I think it would have been different but um sometimes those deaths are very explosive because there's a lot of unresolved stuff. Yeah. Mm. And the dying person once they're at that point where they're dying like they're not going to be able to apologize for the affairs they've had or right. you know the the stuff they stole or whatever it's all just going to be a thing. So Yep, then the families have to decide, like, are you going to just be angry with the dying person, or are you going to yeah. be at peace? Yeah, be sympathetic. I and I think that's good good grieving versus not so good grieving. Yeah, I can see No matter how mad I am at the person who died, I'm going to choose peace, because I'm still alive. Yeah. And my friends and family still need me to survive. And I think being angry at the dying person is just not the most helpful thing. It's a waste of time. It's it a is. waste of energy. And there's no way that it's ever going to get resolved because the person's dead. So it's not like a divorce when you actually could make things better. Like, yeah. This person's dead. Like, there is no yeah. way to make it better. They're gone. They're gone. So be angry. Give yourself time to be frustrated. And then, you know, and then decide what's best for you. Yeah. I don't know if you got the question, but it's kind of coming to that point. I mean, so what? what's the big question as far as, like, if somebody, when they die, or do you ever feel, do you feel like there is uh, spirits, or that there's some kind of a, I don't know, what you even, where you put it in, a presence, or is there a spirit, or do you, do, your observations, have you seen, like, there's something that I think people kind of do have a certain, there is something else, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. That exists beyond, yeah. I definitely do. I think if I hadn't believed in God before I became a chaplain, I probably would now. I'm not sure I believe in the whole no, no. Bi- the Bible stuff. I think yeah. some of the Bible is crap, but yeah. <laughs> feel free to keep that on the podcast because <laughs> I stand by it. Yeah. Um, but I have absolutely sat with people and I've held their, like, you know, I've been feeling like their oh, yeah. pulse when they've passed or I've held their hands and I have felt like their spirit leave the room and it's beautiful and peaceful and um, I don't think I necessarily had a sense like where they were going, sure. you know, like I don't, I'm right. not even sure because Bible doesn't actually talk about hell that there really is one mm-hmm. um so i think maybe i'm probably more along the lines that we're all going someplace good but maybe it's different different space different part of space um so i definitely yeah i think that um i think there is something else out there also i don't know how i could explain why all these people keep saying it's beautiful oh, yeah like yeah. what's beautiful yeah, and people something. tell me about the people that they're seeing and they tell me what they're wearing and, da, 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 and these people are like people that have been dead for 30 years so there's no way that, like, unless there's just some, like, special, like, aura or something that happens, like, you, you know, this, like, space this that you go to for a while, like, in between, I don't know. When my mom died, my dad wanted us all to go outside and clap as the, um, they took the hearse um, from, like, the house to the, uh, or the, the like, the little, 
um, strip stroller, what am I calling it? The stretcher to the hearse. And I was like, why are we doing that? And he's like, because I want her to, like, if her spirit is still here, for her to feel clapped and, like, she, like encouraged. So our neighbors thought that we were doing fireworks. They could hear all this clapping. But we were actually just saying, Mom, thanks. Like, good job. Well done. Like, you did this. Like, you don't have to fight anymore. Yeah, on your way. Bye. And so I don't necessarily know that I've, like, felt people's spirits, like, linger. Like, some people feel that way. But I've definitely felt their spirits leave. And it's never been dark or bad. That's a fact, too. I love the way we're talking about it right now because it is a fact that, again, when we look at death and start talking about it, that I start to even see it differently now as a way of, I don't want to turn it into like, oh, you know, we're in a space suit and we're leaving, but there is this, you, 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 you farewell. Like, yeah, like you're, you're, you're off, yeah. you're, you are going to travel somewhere. You are, you, you're dying. You're going. So yeah, we're celebrating you going when our ticket comes, we'll have our ticket to get on the bus too. Yeah, but, absolutely. And then that's where it should end. I mean, well, I'll see you again. I'm not even going to think about all that. All I know is you're going beautiful. Love you. you, you Most people do say I'll see you again. It seems to provide a lot <laughs> of comfort can, for all religions. And I understand that too. Yeah. But I, I would just say my psychologist doesn't go into trying to create, kill myself on what's on the other side, but to just say, I mean, that to me is just so beautiful in itself to just say, yeah, my, my mom, thank you. Here's here's a big thank you and a farewell to you. And mm-hmm. when, when my again, when my ticket comes, I'll, I'll be on my ticket too and I'll be on my way. Yeah, they better cheer for me when yeah. I'm going out. I'll clap for you, Sarah. Do it, you have to. I'll clap really loud. I call Wake Up Mortuary the Uber for the dead. Because <laughs> they come to pick you up and take your body oh, out. Shit. So I'm all the Uber for the dead has arrived. Yeah, so I'm like, man, they better freaking clap for me oh, the yeah. whole way to that stinking <laughs> minivan and all drive the me off. you've done. Yeah. you've been. Maybe fireworks for yeah. you, Sarah. I think fireworks, fireworks. would be appropriate. Fireworks and margaritas for my friends. I mean, I think Ooh, it's appropriate. I can get on board yeah. with the margaritas. Yeah, I think <laughs> a celebration is important. <laughs> See, yeah, beautiful. Oh, I love, I love it. About it. So I have like one one final question here. Yeah. Um, does age make a difference in how someone approaches death? How is it different when you're dealing with a dying child versus a dying elderly person? So it's different even just dealing with someone who's 40 that's dying versus someone who's 80. So when you're dealing with a dying child, um, everyone grieves because children aren't supposed to die. So there's no way that this is ever going to be right or okay. And there's always till the very bitter end, like, a, could we do something more? But that's not the case when someone's 85. Right. We're not thinking like, well, we could have done this experimental treatment or we could have flown to Asia and tried this or, you know, right. oh, there's this place in Germany that might be able to give us some kind of oil that we could put in the veins. Right. Um, so there's just a lot of fight left when there's kids um, and a lot of, like, how could we have done this? What if we would have caught this earlier? Um, and so there's, for the families, it's just a lot more peaceful when they're 80. Um, I would say when someone is, you know, 85 or 90 and they're dying, um, their spouse really suffers because mm-hmm. they've slept in the same bed for 65 years. So they don't know how to live without that spouse. They may have never cooked or done dishes or laundry or they've never paid bills oh, wow. or they've never put gas in their car. So there's like the logistics of like the death that are very tricky for like the very old, the 80 and above. Um, when your 40s and 50s, 60s and your spouse dies, um, there's, should I date again? Will I not have sex again before I die will I how you know like what will it be like you know there's just all these like logistics yeah. right yeah. No, I, get, I get it and going. some of those people are asking some of those questions are being asked when they're 90s too I mean like I've had many right. should say well so that's it for me and I'm like no here's a condom have fun because <laughs> we give patients condoms because that's the safe thing to do yeah because yeah. nursing homes are 
I've heard nursing homes are, there's a lot of hookups in nursing homes. A lot of hookups. And we're supportive. I'm very supportive of anyone hooking up two consenting adults, knock yourselves out. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're that age, do what you want to do. But yeah, be careful. (laughs) And don't, you know. Be responsible. Be responsible, be responsible. (laughs) But I think there's a lot of, yeah. So I think, and there's someone who's dying, you know, in their 40s and 50s too, oftentimes the kids are, you know, a lot younger. And so, Mm -hmm. um one of the crappiest deaths I did was like a 34-year-old and she had little kids. Oh, wow. And that was just awful. Oh, I was like, man. I don't want to do this. I told the other chaplain, you should do this because you're better at it. And he's like, actually, you're better at this. I'm like, no, no, I think that I can't do this. Like, it's going to be too hard for me to to sit with kids. Um, even though I enjoy working with kids who are grieving, I only enjoy it when it's like their grandparents dying. I don't enjoy right. it when it's their parents dying. Right. That just seems really, because really... you can't end up bawling. Because what? You can't end up crying in the middle of trying to comfort somebody else. Like, that's probably the worst it's thing. the worst. Yeah. And like when baby, I've been around lots and lots of babies that have passed away. Mm-hmm. And that, I feel like, is easier than children because the babies, like the family doesn't have this whole like, story. story with them. Um, but they still have this whole future that they thought the baby's life was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And right. the wedding and all the things that they thought their child was going to have in the, in the same way that if their kid was older. But death is super different. Like... Mm-hmm. When they, I read books and like read articles and journal articles about like new ways to deal with grief, and there's always like new cool things happening. But man, it's so dependent on the situation. Like, yeah, because what's really fantastic for a 13 year old grieving the loss of his grandma is not the same as, you know, a 61 year old who's grieving the loss of her husband. Like, it's yeah, just everybody grieves. Two different it's just way way different situations. Well, which you have is, to be adaptable then. Constantly, which is, I was going to say, one of the best parts about being a chaplain is nothing is ever the same. You're constantly learning new situations, new people, new cultures, new ways of doing things. And so if you're someone who really likes to engage your brain, like me, mm-hmm. it's like a really happy job because mm-hmm. um, you get to constantly learn new things. And I get to hear these fabulous stories from patients about like their life and what they love the most about their life, what they're most proud of. And like, I leave most deaths thinking, man, I, I learned so much from them. Like they're so grateful I was their chaplain, but they have no idea like what they did for me. Like these people have done so much for me that I'll never forget. So, um, it's, it's really, it's such a cool thing to get to be with people at the end of life. So this job has really enriched you personally. It sounds like. Yeah. That's oh, good. Big time. Oh, good. And even switching into this marketing role, like, mm-hmm. I'm still getting to be with people, and I'm still oh. getting to work with people who are dying. Um, it's weird not having the, it's weird not walking in and saying, hi, I'm Chaplain Sarah. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to be like, hi, I'm marketing Sarah, you know? <laughs> so I'm just like, hey, I'm Sarah, the queen of fun. Let's have a visit, you know? <laughs> because I'm not going to walk in and be like, it's time for talk about this, but everyone's going to die. That's just not mm-hmm. who I am. But yeah, it is. It's very rewarding to be with people at the end. Um. My, one of my best friends is OBGYN, and she finds it to be so rewarding to bring babies into the world and, yeah. you know, to be at the birth and the special day for people, and that's a great thing, too. But for me, like, that brings no interest. It's mm-hmm. only at the end of life for me that's interesting. You're ushering them out mm-hmm. into the next phase. I always tell my patients, you know, I was not here for your first breath, but I'm going to be here for oh, your, yeah, last. your last. And it's going to be beautiful, you awesome. know? And they're like, yeah, oh, I that's can nice. do it. They can really trust you're going to... Do the you're gonna make it beautiful. Yeah, I, I would trust you. I would take care of you. Yeah, he died before me. All right. So, um, is there any closing words? Yeah. Uh, is there something you would want to say, like to all the families? I mean, if you could hypothetically in a, in a world just be able to, what would you want to say? I mean, is there something you about death and just, uh, I don't know. Is there something that's mm. always been on your mind? You're like, man, people just knew this, or hey, if I could just tell you this, and you would just do this, maybe. Or, this is what death is. 
What do you want him to know? Yeah, what do I want him to know? I mean, you said a lot, though. I mean, I'm happy with everything you said. I'm putting mm-hmm. you on the spot, but... No, I'm just thinking. Okay. Uh, yeah, take your time. I think what I would want people to know... <laughs> yeah, take your time. Take your time. <laughs> I want you to take as much time as you need. I think I would want people to know that death can be really beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. great. I'm, I love that. Because mm-hmm. you can have a really ideal death. You know, you can have it outside if you want. You can have it inside. You can have all your friends there if you want. The, I mean, the worst thing about COVID is that it's taken away people's choices to have beautiful deaths. Yeah. I mean, mm. people who I know would have liked to have had all their people oh, there were stuck in an IC room alone. Um, but on hospice, most of the time you can have... You know, people can be eating pancakes at your thing, and you can, or you can, you know, like, it, and I think planning your funeral and planning like your obituary and stuff can be really peaceful, beautiful things. Great advice, yeah, because a lot of people don't do that. And they it's don't. Good and it comes too late, and then everybody, the family's stuck, like, oh, we don't know what to do. And once you start like planning your obituary, it really helps you plan your life. Because <laughs> uh, then you're like, yeah. this is what I want it to say when I'm dead, so I better start working towards those goals. Oh my God, you hear that yeah. when you're like 15 years old, but it doesn't hit me like it just hit me now with you, like, yeah. If you t- seriously just like think about dying, I don't know, in five years, and then write that what that would say, and then live your life mm-hmm. and stop making. You know, say begin with the end in mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Thank you guys for inviting oh, me to be on this. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. That this was, was so fun. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> and with that, we are out. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.